0: Welcome to Film Studies Bling Bling. This podcast is dedicated to hidden and well-known treasures, big and small diamonds in a field of film studies. I'm very, very pleased to introduce Helen Leong from the Department of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at the Simon Fraser University in Canada as my Bling of the Month. We will talk about her inspiring and extremely fruitful multi-perspective view on film and learn more about her highly exciting projects Trans-Pacific Film Cities and Queer Sound on Screen. In the news chapter, I will present the recently published book Pandemic Media. I will discuss the book with one of the editors, Lalif Melomet, and Andreas Kirchner, who represents the publisher, Maison Press. And in the Dear Diary chapter, I just tell a little bit about the gloomy mood I'm in right now. Now to my bling of the month, Helen Leung. She's professor at the Department of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at the Simon Fraser University and co-director of the Institute for Trans-Pacific Cultural Research. Born and raised in Hong Kong during the 1970s, Helen left home at the age of 16 to study at the United World College of the Atlantic in Wales. Helen completed her BA at the University of British Columbia her MA at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she also did her PhD. Helen pursued her first major research project on queer culture in Hong Kong, focusing on media culture, during 1999 to 2001. In 2002, she started work at Simon Fraser University, first on a tenure-track position, then as a professor, and in this position, she became the founding co-director of the Institute for Trans-Pacific Culture Research. Helen is the author of numerous publications, short essays, and book and film reviews. Her books include "Farewell, My Concubine," a queer film classic, and "Undercurrents: Queer Culture and Postcolonial Hong Kong." She has produced numerous articles, reviews, and essays addressing trans cinema, new queer angles on Wong Kar and the placing of intimacy in urban romance films, to name only a few of her research topics. In her teaching, she and her students address audiovisual and popular culture and its products from the perspective of queer, trans, and sexuality studies, synophone, interasia, and trans-Pacific studies. In a moment, I will discuss with Helen her current research and her experiences with podcasting. Helen, it's a great honor for me to welcome you to my podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be invited and I feel privileged to be on your podcast. It's really good to hear because, I mean, this is really an interview, a wonderful example for how podcasts can bridge distance. I mean, you, you're you in Canada, it's 10 o'clock a.m. with me already 7 p.m. in the uh-huh. afternoon. I found this really amazing, I have to say.
1: Yeah, and you've, you sound so near as well. So I think uh, we think of distance in a different way Absolutely.
0: now. Absolutely. <laughs> You've been researching and publishing on queer culture and in particular on queer cinema for more than two decades. At the beginning, let us look back. Tell us about your first major research project on queer culture. Well, I finished my PhD at
1: the turn of the millennium, so to speak, you know, 20 years ago. And I had the fortune of having a postdoctoral position where, you know, I had two years that I could start new projects. And at that time, I was hanging out with a lot of people who were working in quiffin festivals, mostly in the U.S. and Canada. And so I would be traveling, you know, watching films. And I got asked a lot, being someone who grew up in Hong Kong, oh, you know, are there queer films in Asia at all? And are queer makers in Asia, you know, facing a lot of challenges? And do they want to kind of become like us? And I remember at that time, I was a little bit bothered by the framing of those questions because my own experience growing up in Hong Kong and also, you know, watching a lot of Asian cinema was that, well, there had always been a lot of queer content, even if they were maybe uh, covert or coded in a way that's different from what was kind of popular in queer cinema in the West at that time. So that kind of became a bit of an obsession and then became research project is to um, look back at, you know, because I grew up in Hong Kong and it has a very rich film culture. So I started off asking the question was, well, what's there queer cinema? In, and what shape did it take? What did it look like? And because it was at the time where Hong Kong was going through political transition, it was switching sovereignty from, you know, being a British colony to, you know, being reclaimed by by China. And so I look back at kind of that transitional period. And in some ways, you know, it became my first book called Undercurrents. And looking back now, and I'm grateful to you for, you know, asking kind of a looking back question because it's interesting for me too, to look back. And I feel like the book kind of documents um, a time when there's a kind of queer aesthetic that it was very oblique, um, even a kind of, I would think of it now as a kind of erotic closetedness, that is definitely not in vogue anymore. That, you know, the current moment, I think, in Hong Kong and other parts of Asia where queer politics is much more on the street, much more radical very kind of covert. And so I I see that project that was my kind of first major research project in some way as kind of documenting particular kind of queer aesthetic in a screen culture that I think is no more. Um, It belonged to a, a particular historical moment. And I like to think of it as not backward per se, but as, you know, like a different, a really different kind of aesthetic that is about suggestion, that is about you know, covertness um, that is about almost like an insider audience. You know, there's a secret scene that we could read queerness where other people couldn't. That was my first project.
0: Very, very interesting. And would you say that the growing number of publications on queer cinema had an effect on this development you described now? I mean, a filmmaker's they they read hopefully sometimes uh, what you published or colleagues of you published. So do you think there was a sort of impulse that academia was able to develop to yeah b- b- foster this development?
1: I I think so, and I think sometimes it, it is interesting to see that we do sometimes get what we want. I think you know both in terms of queer cinema, I think it's influenced by politics for sure, by you know what's actually happening in the world, whether they're you know, like legal wins, whether, um, there's like visibility of activism, but the kind of academic criticism, I think maybe in a slower way also had a feedback loop. So I think a lot of, you know, you could see maybe, you know, a couple of decades ago, the kind of criticism around, you know, stereotypical representations of say gay, lesbian, trans characters, um, have now definitely impacted the way, say the industry would try to portray those characters. So I think in that way, it's quite interesting. But I also think from the point of view of critics, it's quite interesting. There's always, you know, the kind of positive debate, uh, positive image debate, right? Especially in, in a kind of queer film festival, there were over the years lots of debates about well, do we just want positive, healthy, you know, heroic kind of representations? Or is there something queer, something interesting about having villains or, you know, having like complicated characters? And so I think sometimes the industry response to, you know, the kind of stereotype discussion can maybe tilt it towards like the kind of, you know, let's just have positive image, when in fact, there might be some pleasure <laughs> in reading or interpreting um, more conflictual kind of images. So I think the relationship between, you know, as you said, filmmakers and what's going on in academia or criticism is is an interesting one. And I, I don't think it's like a direct relation, but it's it's kind of a, I think, a conversation. Yeah,
0: a, d- a discourse or a conversation. Yeah, thank you. And you have been continuously working on the intersection of queer and transgender studies, post-colonial studies, sexuality studies, media and film studies, Asian studies and trans-Pacific studies. Could you describe for us how the different theoretical and disciplinary approaches meet in your research work? Because I have the impression that the richness of your view on film stems from the fact that you're building a kind of uh, multi-perspective network that enables new ways of looking at film? Well, thank you
1: so much for the very generous question. And I think because I started my first project, as I explained, you know, in some way started off with a desire to question a particular kind of framework of looking at queer screen culture, you know, so kind of questioning the way it's you know, it's not a linear progress kind kind of framework, right? And that got me, you know, turning to say Asian cinema and looking at images and text that maybe would in that linear perspective look old-fashioned or backward, but wanting to say no, that is not necessarily backward. It provides a different frame of reference and perhaps a different way of understanding gender embodiment and sexual practices. So and and that's not the kind of work that I would want to do alone. And so I did, you know, then work with a lot of colleagues who work in other parts of work on screen culture in other parts of Asia. And really looking at how we can multiply different frames of references for studying say, LGBTQ cinema. So even just a few years ago, I co-edited a special issue of the Transgender Studies Quarterly, and it's a special issue on Asia. And we had contributions from scholars who study especially Southeast Asian cinemas. And it was fascinating because what they show is that the cinematic traditions of trans, transgender representation in Southeast Asia really predated the West, predated this current period of trans visibility by decades. They've always had, you know, trans representation. But then if, you know, sometimes I show those films for students and they looked at those and they, they would think, well, but then that's not, that's not Correct, or uh, some of those seems seems old fashioned, seem to not conform to what we think of as the right trans representation now. And so again, you know, then I would think it's really important not to look at it in that linear way, right? But to, to I would tell my students is like, well, can you forego that? But to understand what if we're looking at a screen culture that has long understood. That, that is not binary uh, gender embodiment. And, you know, can you respect and look at how that embodiment has been represented? And how would that make you think differently about LGBTQ politics in the world today? And so I think that's one thing that is important to me. And the second, also, you mentioned trans Pacific studies, um, which had gotten me to work with a lot of scholars who work on um, Asian diasporas. And in diasporic communities, you would find it's also fascinating in that um, oftentimes I live in a city where there's like a really large Asian diasporic communities. um, And the way they approach um, LGBTQ issues, they tend to want to mine the kind of traditions that They see that their own parents or ancestors, you know, came from. And so there's a lot of interest in diasporic communities about these, say, queer images that came not from the West, but say, you know, in the traditions that maybe their grandparents knew. And in that way, you come up with a way of reconciling the queer and diasporic communities, which are often in tension. And so in that way, I think screen culture helps a lot. I definitely can see, you know, even in my first book I was looking at, you know, in Hong Kong, there has always been this kind of transgender kind of performers in traditional opera that my parents' generation would would have been watching. And they were perfectly comfortable with that, right? They don't necessarily see it as queer. They just see it as that's part of what I'm familiar with. So in kind of, as you were alluding to, kind of, marrying queer and trans studies with, say, diasporic studies, Asian studies. That's a way of recovering some of those frameworks. And then I think bring them back so that you can look at queer and trans studies globally in a different way and keep multiplying those uh, reference
0: points. Wow, so there is these two levels or stages. I mean, there is this theoretical and disciplinary multi-perspective network. And at the same time, the really hands-on multi-perspective networks of colleagues that go into a discussion and bring in their perspectives. And this, I would say this is quite a good uh, recommendation. Uh, how did you say that in German? An Empfehlung, something you can recommend to upcoming young researchers To think about that, that it's not only about a theoretical and disciplinary diversity, but also to really be open for the perspectives colleagues bring or adapt or bring into a research project and looking at film from these different angles. Yeah, because I think sometimes sometimes when we
1: like make very big theoretical claim, then when you think about how do I do that, then you realize it's not something anybody can do alone. You know, when people talk about critiquing the say Eurocentrism of you know queer theory. Not one person can do that. So it is exactly as you say, in that way, how do you critique Eurocentrism and queer theory, let's say, um, then you need to collaborate with scholars who are working on non-Eurocentric projects and then figure out a way to let that perspective come to the foreground and have some impact on the global conversation.
0: In in one of your current research projects, you will also use theories from urban studies. Would you like to give us an insight into your work on Trans-Pacific Film Cities?
1: I had a piece in urban studies, which really, I was pleased about I didn't think I would ever have a piece in urban studies. But that resulted from a collaboration with a colleague of mine, Audrey Yu, who's a professor uh, in National University of Singapore. Um, she's very eclectic and is a scholar of cultural studies and communication, and who's also done a lot of work on film heritage and on kind of urban communication. And is also a prolific queer studies scholar. And that piece resulted in a conversation that we were just having about intersecting, there's a lot of scholarship on Asian urbanism that's really interesting, like like uh, looking at Asian cities and how, you know, their planning and their urban aesthetics, all of that's quite different from the way we think about, you know, urban metropolis, the the traditional urban metropolis in the West. So that's like scholarship that way, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's all the queer city scholarship, you know, all the Richard Florida influence stuff and the, the subsequent critique of Richard Florida of talking about, you know, the impact of queer inhabitants in urban development. And so it was just a conversation about linking those two scholarships and then got us to think about how do we think about cities like the city? that we were familiar with, uh, Hong Kong on my part and Singapore on her part that she's working on, who cities which would be considered kind of quote-unquote backward in terms of legal rights for queer communities. And yet those are also cities whose urbanism is very developed and have very advanced communication network, which I think allow for very vibrant kind of queer lives that maybe, you know, not even possible in, in in the West. And so we were thinking, well, what does that mean? And so that collaboration became kind of an experimental piece that just hoped to want to start the conversation. How do you look at this seeming paradox, right, of these thriving Asian metropolis that in these cases had not like very little legal rights for queer subjects, and yet that's kind of vibrant and thriving queer lives that we can find in those cities? How do we theorize that? How do we, again, from studying those cities, come up with a different kind of referential mm. framework. And so so my really foray into urban studies started from that conversation. Um, but interestingly, because then for that piece, I had to read a lot on city scholarship and Read some urban studies scholarship, which then got me to rethink some of my film studies work um, so that I'm not only interested in film as film, as art, as text, but then I started becoming interested in the impact of film production on a city. Because I live in Vancouver, where film production is economically very, very significant to our city and to the province. But at the same time, it's a city without film heritage because You know, unlike where I grew up in Hong Kong and Hong Kong has great film heritage, but in Vancouver, because it's a production city for location, it's really a location industry. And so there are very few films filmed in Vancouver that are actually set in Vancouver, right? And that was a big debate in our city. <laughs> it's like what's the impact of that? We keep disguising ourselves as American cities mm. and and Asian cities even in some ways. And and so that led me to the film cities project that you're referring to that is really looking at the kind of impact of film production on what I and some colleagues are calling kind of minor filmmaking city. So these are not the big, you know, not New York or Los Angeles, uh, but cities exactly like Vancouver, um, where it kind of is seen as playing second fiddle to the big film production cultures. But at the same time, the film production has a very important impact on everyday life. And it also contributes to a lot of debate around the city's cultural identity. And it also enables and it, kind of entire generation of filmmakers and crew, people with filmmaking skills who are actually able to also then start sustaining an independent culture. you can think of it as an effect of the production the location culture. Um, so I find that dynamics really interesting and again you know in that project I looked at Vancouver, but I'm also in conversation with colleagues who work on other similar kind of cities queer cities got me interested in city scholarship, which then kind of impacted the way I think about them studies and, you know, want to keep on, but finding fresh angles, right? Not just always just analyzing aesthetics and text.
0: I have to make a link here to my own research project because the cinematic face of cities In this project, I analyse Potsdam, where my university is situated. And Potsdam has one of the oldest film studios in the world. And there are also a lot of film production going on here. And it's a bit the opposite to Vancouver, because we have a lot of film heritage echoing this tradition of film production in the city. A lot of film heritage, for instance, I don't know, streets named after filmmakers, um, the film museum different formats that invite the citizens to discover shooting locations and so on and so forth. For me, it's, it's also a very interesting thing. To think about these connections, the image of a so called film city, and who is part of this process that a city is really able to create this image of itself as a film city. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to go check out your work now. (laughs) That that would be brilliant. (laughs) Uh, It's
1: this piece on Potsdam. Yeah, but I
0: started just one year before, so there is not that much to read. But maybe in two years, I can uh, offer something to you. (laughs) Really looking forward to read your, your work and the work from your colleagues because it will inform my research definitely and so so much looking forward to that Mm -hmm. there are several other lines of research you're pursuing let's talk about your project queer sound on screen i love the title how did you come up with the topic and when can we read or maybe hear something from you about this interesting topic and again, that came
1: out of um, a piece that I did for another project. So this was maybe two, two, three years ago, I did a piece for Transgender Studies Quarterly, which is a special issue on translation, like transgender and translation. I worked on the a blockbuster Thai film that uh, featured a transgender volleyball team that became like a box a sensation in parts of Asia. And particularly in Hong Kong, it invited dubbed version, like a celebrity dubbed version of that film. Mm-hmm. And I was just fascinated by it because, you know, at that time, this was like before uh, trans politics was visible in any way. So I was fascinated by how a film that stars, trans actors, and about, you know, trans characters could gain such kind of mainstream popularity in Hong Kong. And as I studied that film, I became interested in the audiovisual translation. There's a kind of scholarship on audiovisual translation. And I ended up kind of studying the dubbing of that film, like what is the impact of the dubbed soundtrack, and how it affected the way it circulated, and how it affected the way the films, you know, talked about, global Globally. And because of that, it had, because I was reading stuff then on film sound and on audiovisual translation, and then realizing that it's a really rich body of scholarship out there. And in my own university, in Simon Fraser University, there's a very rich tradition of uh, folks doing sound studies. And so I met a lot of colleagues and students who work on sound and sound, soundscape in really interesting way. And so that just made me think about if I want to continue to write on queer cinema, I want kind of fresh angles and fresh perspectives. And then I thought, well, maybe I should go more into looking at film sound, especially because the way queerness and transness get talked about on screen is so much around visuality, right? It's so much about representation, so much about especially visual representation. So I kind of made a a challenge to myself is can we even think queer and trans sonically and what does that mean? And so that's what kind of started the project. It's a bit slow going um, because it's actually, it is a complex and really fascinating project. It also has links to disabilities studies in in terms of the way sound functions in, say, a film about a queer blind character, or a queer deaf character. And so, you know, it really opened up a whole new kind of horizon for me. And so that's what I've been sort of digging into. And I think this, first I was envisioning I could maybe do a short book that could be interesting or it might just be, you know, a series of articles that I keep writing on because it, it's so fascinating. It's also, it takes you to a lot of different places as well.
0: Really looking forward to to read your research on this very, very interesting topic. And I really think it's a very fresh perspective. Speaking of hearing and sound, you're also the host of a podcast called Trans-Pacific Stories, a podcast about the people behind the scholarship. I think you really have to tell us about this finally.
1: Because I co-direct a research institute at my university called the Institute for Trans-Pacific Cultural Research. What the institute does is to connect network of scholars who work on mobility and migration in the Pacific worlds. And, you know, we've kind of met each other at different conferences and we've co-written some articles together. And because we kept meeting each other in different cities in the Pacific world, Mm. and then as we hang out, I realized, well, these people do, you know, really interesting scholarship on migration, but they themselves have lived like a really interesting history of migration. And they are themselves mobile in this really different way. So I wanted to capture kind of the personal side of them. And that's why I, was, I really did become literally interested in the people behind the scholarship. So I was able to persuade a few of them to be interviewed by me and, and kind of tell their stories. And that's what started the podcast. It was really, I thought, oh, I'd do something for the Institute. And at first, because I was recording these interviews all over the world, like if I were in Shanghai for a conference, I, you know, grab a friend and say, well, you know, talk to me. And that became part of it that I was fascinated with asking these scholars about their own history of mobility and migration in relation to the cities that we're in. I still have one that I'm still editing that I did in Malaysia before COVID hit. But I think now I've kind of stopped a bit because I'm not traveling. But inspired by you, I should probably start thinking about doing it remotely, but also reintroducing a sense of place in relation to this remote situation we find ourselves in maybe. So yeah, it, it really started with that, with just wanting to just tell the stories of these scholars I've been working with on the scholarship, but in fact discovering that they have personal lives that are just as fascinating, if not more fascinating than their scholarship.
0: What I really like about the podcast is that there is this meta thing going on because even before corona, using a podcast to give people a voice about their experience of mobility and migration, using a podcast means to use medium that migrates as well and is so mobile so that everyone in the world is able to reach this interviews or to listen to these interviews. So I I find this very, very interesting to connect. For me, it was this moment of connecting the mobility of a podcast that is so accessible, so easy access for everyone. And the stories the scholars tell us. And now with Corona, there is this paradox situation that we have to think about mobility, even in a deeper level.
1: How did you start your podcast, if you don't mind me (laughs) turning a question to you? Because you also interview not just scholars, but also, you know, filmmakers,
0: film festival people. What, What inspired you to start? To be honest, there were different points of motivation. One aspect was that for me as a female scholar, I was a bit frustrated to hear so many podcasts by male, white couples, a buddy, buddy podcast chatting about films or uh, male scholars. Sorry for that. Reflecting on audiovisual media. I mean, there are great examples, but nevertheless, I would say that still there are two less female voices. And for me, it was a, a way of being brave and say, no, now it's me. And I want to give me a voice and to be hopefully a good role model for others to start uh, a podcast. And now, I mean, it's not because I'm so inspiring, but nevertheless I'm very very lucky that we have three other podcast projects um, that will come out of our university in the next month and I think that's brilliant. So this was one aspect and the other was that I was funded to produce the podcast to support, in a way, film studies because in, in Germany we, we call film studies small a small discipline um, in the danger to disappear on different universities, and the podcast is an attempt to support or make visible the discipline film studies and to maybe inspire some potential students to study this discipline and to show that there is a huge diversity in film studies um, I mean film studies scholars around the world are conducting so interesting projects and to really make this visible or hearable and then there is a third aspect and then I stop because it's, it's all about you <laughs> Um, is that for me, podcast is a very nice tool to do some networking. I mean, when I'm on on a conference, I wouldn't have the courage to go to you and say, hi, Helen, it's Anna from Germany, and I would like to talk with you because I read about your interesting Project Trans-Pacific film cities. But now with the podcast, I'm able to just write everyone I want to. Mm. And when I'm inspired by a scholar, I'm able to just contact the person and be even more inspired and give Give this inspiration to others because it's so cool to listen, for instance, to you with your enthusiasm and the way you describe your projects. It's something totally different than just, in quotation marks, reading the work of colleagues. Yeah, no, that's great. I think I would
1: definitely encourage younger scholars to, you know, find different ways. I mean, it's a sort of public engagement, right? And I love the way you talked about how you in some way want to make sure that the discipline survives. And this is a great way to really engage everybody, as you said, even people outside of film studies to get them interested in the discipline.
0: I hope so. Thank you very much, Helen, for this interview and all the best to your research. And we really recommend to read all the interesting publications of yours and the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Here is the News Chapter, presenting you the recently published book, Pandemic Media. What you hear now is a conversation I had with one of the editors, Lalive Melamet, and Andreas Kirchner, who represents the publisher Maison Press. Hello Lalif and Andreas, nice to have you in my podcast. Hey. Hello. Please introduce yourself. Briefly to our listeners, please.
2: My name is uh, Andreas Kirchner. I'm one of the uh, co founders of uh, Meson Press. I have a background in media studies, and apart from Meson, I'm working at the open science team at the University of Konstanz. And yeah, thanks for the invitation. I'm, I'm happy to be here.
3: It's a pleasure. Laliv. My name is Laliv Melamed. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the JK Group Configuration of Film in Frankfurt University. And I'm among the co editors. Of the book Pandemic Media, which we're going to talk about soon. And I'm actually also a film programmer at the Doc of Viv Film Festival in Tel Aviv.
0: Ah, wow. And you both were really, really super fast. I mean, we're just a few months after the first lockdown and into the second wave of the pandemic. And we can already read a book about. Pandemic Media. Lalif, you mentioned it already. You are one of the editors. Tell us how you managed to react so quickly on such a high level and with such great authors to this, quote, heavily mediated event. How did you get together, write, review and publish in such a short time?
3: First of all, let me start by saying that the book is co-edited by myself, of course, and my fellows at the configuration of film group Philippe Dominic Heidel and Vincent Hediger, and Antonio Somaini from the Sorbonne in Paris. And well, there are like few answers to this. First of all, I think that personally as film scholars or as human beings, we were trying to wrap our heads around what is happening. And the tools that we have available to us are the tools of film and media scholars. So I think that there was something almost intuitive in kind of like trying to think through our own knowledge, what is happening here or how this thing is mediated to us. The other answer that I think that what happened is actually a good representation of the kind of acceleration that is happening with media around the pandemic. Antonio Somaini and Vincent Hediger started to exchange all these, like funny memes that were running around. Sorry, funny memes that were running around. You know, social media.
0: Yeah, I received them too. So many. I don't know. I was exchanging these memes all the time through the through the first wave. Yeah, I know absolutely yeah. what you're talking about.
3: Yeah. So so you start changing them, and you know, it's it's a it's a kind of like a relief through humor, but also you start thinking what they're doing and what they are, and you know, we started looking at all these like short videos that people uploaded to YouTube or to Facebook, and gradually you start to recognize a sort of you know first of all, new visual language but also sort of a new media circulation that is happening so this thing gradually accumulated into a set of like pressing questions and then we said okay you know maybe we can start collecting it at first we thought about something that would be even more eclectic and like very short interventions but when we started the dialogue with the different contributors we realized that there is actually already like a more developed argument to make here about the role of media during the pandemic another thing that I should say is that we also ask people to draw on stuff that they were thinking about regardless. So, you know, people were working on certain things and then the pandemic happened and kind of traverse the logic of the thing that they were working on. So we ask them also to reflect Mm. on that.
0: And in this specific context, uh, scholars working on this topic, but scholars at the same time affected by the pandemic. You mentioned in the introduction, a very interesting word or phrase, pandemic scholarship. What do you mean by this?
3: I mean what happened was um science or scholarship during the pandemic was tapping into an already quite an extensive debate about the production of knowledge these days and the public profile of knowledge, especially academic knowledge. When the pandemic happened, a lot of scientific journals really changed the review process to allow a faster publication process. What does it do to knowledge, right? I mean, because we compromise some of the gatekeepers that we employ. But on the other hand, we do have an urgent situation and we need to, to reply to it. You know, while we're not sci- scientists working on the virus directly as media scholars, we were also like tangled in this dilemma, right? We want to publish something that addressed the situation, something that is relevant, that engages with the urgency of the situation. But on the other hand, we also want to make sure that we allow our authors enough time to develop their ideas. We allow them enough feedback. I can tell you that it was <laughs> it was a very, very intense process. I mean, despite the, you know, the fastness of our response, I mean, we made sure that, you know, all the essays were reviewed in like Double blind peer review. We really kept the protocol. But I mean, you really ask yourself, what does it mean that you want to respond very quickly? And you realize that's the kind of labor we're doing as scholars demand time uh processes demand time gatekeeping demands time so i think pandemic media is a way to kind of like negotiate these two things Yeah,
0: yeah and i would say that it works so well because it's not a journalistic intervention you produced right i mean you were obviously able to balance these two sides that on the one hand to be super fast and to be able to speak up and be visible during this pandemic or during this event and on the other hand to to stick with the quality we want in our scientific community, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, and, and I do want to stress here, because you brought um, Andreas and me together, that, I mean, we found the perfect partner. Uh, and I think you know, we couldn't do it so quickly if we didn't have Mise um, Press willing to, I mean, their timeline was insane, how quickly they had to respond and produce this. Andreas, would you
0: like to go into this? <laughs> would you like to give us an impression of how it was for you to be in this uh, really, wow, amazing production process?
2: Yeah. I mean, it was incredibly fast. Yeah, that's true. For both sides, so to say, Yeah, for the authors, the editors, and also for us. Um, I think it was also a reason why we came up with this idea to put the HTML files online first. Mm-hmm. It's just the fastest way to put the things out. You just put it online and then you can still make some of the uh, corrections um, while it is already published, so to say. Yeah, And now we have some more time to produce the PDF files and then later the printed version. So, yeah, it was intense. (laughs) <laughs> I can't second that. Um, but it was also fun. And having also worked in, in theaters a couple of years ago, I always liked this deadline, working on tight deadlines and working after hours and so on. And this brings you extremely close to the texts you publish. And this is kind of unique, so to say. And yeah, I can say it was fun, but it was also hard work and it was a great experience in the end.
0: We will come to the format question back in a, in a few minutes, because I'd really love to speak a bit more about the content of the book, La Livre, because yeah. one can examine the role of media in the context of the current pandemic on a variety of levels and furthermore add to one's knowledge by applying an historical perspective to the media configurations of past pandemics. Yeah. I can imagine that there was the question, okay, from which perspective do we approach this phenomenon? And you have chosen the concept of media event as a gateway for reflection to arrive then at the concept of pandemic media. Could you present your thinking concerning this overarching theoretical framework and its relation with a publication?
3: First of all, you're right, and that really reflects the the kind of like the way our thinking around this as well. There was a moment when we were talking, okay, maybe we should introduce like historical perspective of of how historically how different pandemic presented like new media constellations. Mm. We were trying to think for through a more like abstract pattern that also taps on like what is at stake with media today. Even before the pandemic, and in that sense, I mean we address it in the introduction that was written by Philip Dominic Heil and myself and in that sense, for both Philip and me, the question of of crisis and media as a sort of tool to manage and organize crisis, but also crisis as a sort of historical force or a generative force was very important for both of us in our own work, so we already had the tools to kind of like Try to think about the pandemic as a prism of media and crisis, and the media event is a term that really comes up around this this coupling of media and a big historical happening mm. and I think also it taps on like the changing of media and different constellations of media, so media event is a term that originally addressed a televisual uh, live event, so this kind of like marathonic broadcasting, and it starts in the eighties with um, Eliyahu Katz and Daniel Dayan's book about media events, but then you know it really taps on questions of circulation and synchronicity and the temporality of media and different media technologies and different media outlets. So a lot of the things that we try to unpack in this book was the different contribution. When we were writing the introduction, we were thinking with another introduction that was just published uh, by Lisa Parks and Janet Walker, where they talk about environmental crisis and media. Um, And it really resonated some of the stuff that we were thinking, that media is not only a mode of representation, but it's actually an active force within the constellation of the event or the crisis that is happening.
0: You have developed a kind of inventory of pandemic media. It's the word you use, inventory, and worked on at least five fields of interest then. It would be great if you could introduce them to us briefly. I know it's literally not possible to sum up this very rich book, but nevertheless, maybe it's a good starting point to get an idea of the publication by describing these five fields of interests you developed.
3: I mean, so first of all, the idea of the inventory is to kind of like try to set a sort of order or a lexicon of what is happening. And I think the lexicon or the inventory kind of introduce already something familiar into phenomena that we might perceive as as new. The other thing that I want to say about the inventory, and I'm going to talk about the different categories, is also, I mean, eventually we're also uh, responding to what the different authors were saying. So, of course, the inventory is not something imposed on the contributions, Mm -hmm. but also organically coming from them. We organized the different contributions to sectors that are titled time, temporality, space and scale, technologies and materialities, education and instructions, and activism and sociability. And we were basically trying to think through the usages, location, and the format formation of media under the pandemic. This triple set of terms, usages, location, and format formations are the term that we in the configurations of film group are working with to think about film or different configurations of film today. So the idea was to kind of like use the inventory as sort of vectors through which We examine what happened with media in such a total event and how media kind of like is affected, but also affecting these different categories that address, I think, very elemental or even basic or essential aspects of our everyday reality. Mm. And if I counted correctly,
0: there are 73 chapters in total. Now we're here in a film studies podcast. So, of course, I have to ask you about the contributions that deal specifically with film and the pandemic. And there are quite a few, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, there are 37 contributions, (laughs) which is quite a number. (laughs) It's quite a lot. A lot of them are, are about film. I mean, we have uh, Jaap Verhoeven working on the film Vault. We have uh, Malte Hagener working on the split screen and its history throughout film. We have Karen Fleck working on the drive-in cinema. Uh, Ulrico Bergmann, who's talking about a short film from the Oberhausen uh, Short Film Festival. We have De Valk talking about film festivals. Leonie Zilch talking about porn cinema. So, of course, there are a lot of contributions that you can define as film, but I, I do need to say that, you know, as part of what we're trying to do in the configurations of the film is really to think film beyond film. So the question of how do we define what is film is really a, an important question for us. And we really try to unstable this dispositive that we might call film. And I think the pandemic was, was a really interesting case for us. Because, for instance, you know, we have quite a few contributions that talk about Zoom, a contribution by uh, Yvonne Zimmerman and Maldehagener and Guillermo de Silva Macedo and John Mowit. So all of them talk about this communication infrastructure, but they borrow film templates and film histories in order to understand it. So is this, I mean, can we define these as contributions about film? Or about media infrastructures. I, I'm not sure. I mean, we have contribution by, by Marika de Valk and Rebecca Williams to talk about film festivals. It's also contributions about watching. <laughs> films on, in, on on the screen or about changes that happen in spaces in which we come together as audiences. Uh, another example is a contribution by uh, Juan Lamas-Rodriguez that talks about a short animation that was made by an Indian artist to talk about the migrant workers crisis that happened when the Indian government enforced a lockdown in really short notice. So, I mean, I don't know if you know, it was a total disaster. People were stacked uh, Um, hundreds of miles away from home with no food and no transportation, and we're literally dying out of hunger. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is a contribution about film, but it also talks about circulation and the kind of structure of circulation is, is social media completely different understanding of distribution than, you know, the kind of like traditional uh, filmic cultures of distribution and circulation. So I think that I mean, also the question of where do we locate film now is really changing and especially with the media, I think that was pandemic. And I think that also we're going to witness a really shift in aesthetics and production modes in distribution. I mean, we're already thinking what does it mean that our entire filmic interaction are now being transmitted to us through the computer screen? Can we even still call it film? Sorry, it's a long <laughs> answer to uh, what seems to be a simple question. But I think actually what's happening with the book, that it's really teases this question of, are we talking here about film? Are we talking here about media infrastructure or how film knowledge travels into other screens and other uh, spaces of visual interaction?
0: Mm. And I think your book is a brilliant impulse for a discussion that will go on because I I read different papers are coming up now. For instance, Cassetti gave this short impulse on relocation and panfilmic existence through the pandemic. So I'm quite sure that the book will be like a first very important impulse and that this discussion will go on after hopefully this pandemic is over next year. Andreas, the book is published in the Configurations of Film series. In this series, we can already read um, the title Medium Format Configuration, Configurations of Film and Tracks from the Crypt. Who is behind the Configurations of Film series and what other publications are planned in the series?
2: Configurations of Film is a um, publication series of the graduate research training program Configuration des Films, which is German and means uh, configuration film, at Goethe University in uh, Frankfurt. And yeah, there are a lot of different people involved with this series starting with the director um, Vincent Hediger who is also one of the uh, editors of this uh, publishing project and yeah other principal investigators such as Van der Strauben and others of course the postdocs uh, Lalief and Philipp Dominik Keidel or the coordinator um, Brina Mundt and yeah, there's an international editorial board. So really a lot of different people involved. But I would also like to mention uh, the cover designer, Matthias Baer, and also our editorial assistant, Fabian Vessels, because uh, both of them have really done a quite fantastic job, I think. And, yeah, in the next months, or we can say even years, there will be a whole bunch of new different publications out um, in in various formats. And there will be these uh, small booklets you already mentioned. these were the booklets written by the uh, various Mercator fellows uh, that come to Frankfurt, hopefully, soon. And, um, yeah, the next publication will be on Serge Danay and queer cinephilia, and it will be edited by Pierre Eugène. Kate Inns and Mark Siegel, and who's also a PI at the uh, Configuration des Films. So, so there's a lot of stuff coming up.
0: And uh, after this, look into the future and the work you're doing at the moment. Give us a brief introduction to the history of the publisher and the contributions of yourself and your two colleagues and uh, collaborators, Mercedes Bunds and Markus Burkhardt. So where, where does it came that you decided to, well, okay, now we start to, <laughs> to have a publisher and do these exciting work on open access publishing?
2: <laughs> yeah, actually, Maison Press um, emerged from a research project at the Hybrid Publishing Lab at the Center for Digital Cultures at Lifana University in Lüneburg in the uh, north of Germany. And we kind of founded Maison Press in 2015, right after the hybrid publishing lab was um, closed. And, um, yeah, it's, it's organized as a uh, cooperative and, uh, jointly managed by the three of us. And yeah, Mercedes, um, is of course someone who, has an extremely good uh, feeling for um, emerging topics and and discourses. And uh, since she's uh, in London now for more than 10 years, she's also a strong uh, link to the Anglosphere for us. And yeah, Markus is also a media scholar like uh, Mercedes. And yeah, he's very much into German and international media theory, media philosophy, and also science and technology studies and and stuff like that. And um, in addition, he has also some great technical skills, uh, which is, of course, um, very helpful for special projects like Pandemic Media and others. And yeah, we kind of coordinate who's responsible for which publications. And I think we're all media scholars in a way, but we kind of complement each other quite well from our special interests, so to say. And We've also been friends um, since our time together in Lüneburg, which, of course, makes working together much more fun and makes it much easier, at least most of the time.
0: And I'm quite sure that, uh, especially in the so stressful projects uh, or demanding projects like Pandemic Media, it's very good to like each other (laughs) and to be friends. (laughs)
2: You
0: You talked about different books already, Uh, so one might assume already what kind of focus you have in your publisher but maybe nevertheless would you like to give us an idea of the main focus of your publishing program
2: our main focus is kind of publishing research on digital cultures and network media and um Questions and uh, topics related to film studies emerge in, in many, many of our publications, but the configurations of film series has kind of increased the importance of this field a lot. But still, for us, it was very important that um, the main focus of the series lies on film in the digital age or, as Laliv mentioned earlier, film beyond film, Yeah. So, um, for us, it is important that film studies is nothing that could be uh, worked on besides media studies. It, it is so closely uh, related to media studies that this just it's just the case for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We published just published another very exciting book, uh, actually, which is called High Definition, uh, Median Image processing. It's a German book by Elisa Linzeisen. And yeah, it's a, it's a book. Uh, that deals also with digital film and digital photography and and tv shows and video art and and various uh, film uh, theories and this is kind of typical book i would say um, for media uh, for meson press um, as well like the configurations of film books and i can yeah highly recommend it uh, to everybody who reads uh, german and um, yeah maybe we'll also publish a translation of it in the future
0: yeah, maybe if you have a translation, then let's have a chat about the book <laughs> um, in this podcast. That would be brilliant. Yeah, um, But let's go back to, uh, to Pandemic Media. you mentioned it already, Andreas, that the unique thing about the book is that it, at least at, at, until now or in this moment, cannot be straightforwardly downloaded as a PDF, which everyone expects, right, when something is published open access. Instead, there is a separate website on which the book and its individual chapters unfold in open access. You gave us already a reason why you decided to do this publishing this way. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but, but tell us about this format and maybe about the publishing format and why you tried it out, and when we will have a PDF, and will there be a printed edition of the book as well?
2: I mean, to to start with the last question, yeah, there will be a a printed edition. We have actually discussed um, various options, but one thing I think was was quite uh, sure from the beginning, that we can't just do a normal edited classic collection. I kind of think that we had the idea that the individual essays, they should be given a certain autonomy. Yeah, They, they should somehow be able to stand for them themselves, at least a bit. And um, the structure of the uh, collection, you've uh, already mentioned it, thus becomes at least I see it that way, rather an offer than a given preset. And it opens up resonances uh, between the various chapters that would maybe not uh, arise in a classical collection. Yeah, on the on the Maison side, we also felt that the yeah somehow provisional character of the project. I mean, the the uh, subtitles preliminary notes uh, towards an inventory could maybe best uh, reflected in an HTML first publication, and yeah, that the publication will now be published in in waves, in a way. Um, I mean, we are currently working in, on the PDFs and they will be ready for download soon. This also kind of resonates, of course, to the topic. But then there are, of course, pragmatic reasons I already mentioned that play a role. I mean, considering the, the enormous speed of the publication, um, HTML was just also the, the fastest option because, I mean, a PDF must be typeset very carefully. The images must be edited carefully and the formal requirements are still a bit higher than for a html um, publication and yeah this is of course even more the case with the print publication but still print is for us very important as important as the digital formats and uh, with a print publication then you also reach new readers and it, it opens up new spaces again and um, offers a different reading experience and This maybe exposes different layers of of both the the individual text and also the entire volume. And the print edition is planned for December. We hope that we can publish it by the end of the year
0: will maison press continue to experiment with different forums for open access publishing will there be other um, books that maybe even go beyond pdf and websites and so on are you thinking about that are there any plans
2: yeah i mean absolutely Um, i mean the open access part is part of our dna so to say this is clear so everything we will publish will be open access and, um, experimenting with different formats has also been part of our work from, from the beginning. A few months ago, we, we launched a, a growing publication. It's called uh, Explorations in Digital Cultures. And in this publication, the, the individual contributions will be published piece by piece or step by step and just kind of evolving and, and, and growing. We also had the possibilities to use this uh, technical infrastructure uh, we developed for um, exploration then also for pandemic media, and kind of parts of the experience we made with that publication also were quite useful now, and we also are working on a um, publication on uh, McLuhan, and there are also videos connected to it and so we are kind of opening up these formats as monographs and edited collections uh, more and more and yeah this is an important part of our work I would say.
0: Lalif, will you publish with Maison Press in the next month or something? What kind of publishing project are you working on at the moment?
3: Well, first of all, I just want to respond to what Andres was just saying. That part of what's exciting for me in Maison Press is really the—I mean, first of all, the open access, which I think is—it's a statement and it's a com- commitment to your community that is really important because. You open the access. And also it allows a sort of immediacy that's, as I, as you know, we talked earlier, something that we were thinking about when we were thinking about pandemic scholarship. I also think it's an opportunity for uh, film and media scholars to materialize in the text some of the aspects that characterize their object of research. So if you work on contemporary film or media phenomena, you're dealing with a media that is very malleable and porous. And it could be that your text can do the same work if it would allow itself some flexibility as a text. So I think format is really important here. I also want to say that you know when we had this long discussion about to go with the HTML publication first and only later the PDF, we were thinking with a few set of you know like what do film and media scholars need now? So on the one hand we were like oh they need an accessible and an immediate content on the pandemic. So, you know, of course, publishing in HTML first allow us to publish faster, but also it was obvious to us that eventually people do need the PDF in order to cite it, in order to use it in, in syllabus and in classes and things like this. So there is a sort of elasticity that is really important here. As for me, I'm actually currently completing a first draft of a manuscript on family home videos that were somehow broadcast on television. So I'm also working on this kind of like very elastic media sphere. Mm-hmm. Where right now, I'm not sure where the book is going to... I can't say about where the book is going to be published. It's still in conversation. But I mean, I'm also part of the editorial board of the configuration of film series. And so obviously, I see a future there in terms of publication and really, really looking forward for further collaboration with Misson Press.
0: Sounds good. And I mean, for your writing project, I'm quite sure that this publication of uh, Pandemic Media was a very positive experience. I mean, have you received feedback? I'm quite sure that you've got a lot of positive feedback already, right?
3: Of course, we got a lot of uh, very good feedback and we were communicating with the different authors that were also very excited and they also got feedback. But one thing that uh, for me was interesting, even before we published, I mean, you know, quite a few people, colleagues and friends that knew that we were working on this project asked us, you know, again and again when it's going to be published because they want to integrate some of the materials to their salabi of, of, you know, especially the ones that are talking about contemporary media landscapes. And for me, that was a really interesting sign, right? I mean, because something that happened was the pandemic that we had to kind of like reevaluate the things that we're working on. You know, we had to reevaluate the format in which we work. So much of us who are teaching had to reevaluate what teaching means and we had to invent new forms but also think what we want to keep. And the same goes with the syllabi that we were working with. You know, we still wanted to teach certain theories and certain understanding of media, but also there were like stuff that we couldn't ignore that happened in our everyday reality. This for me was very exciting to think that the book we were working on can be a resource for people that, you know, want to talk to their students about media and about film and about their doing in the world but also you know feel that they need to kind of like put it up to date with with current events with the pandemic i mean for me this interest among people that want to integrate some of the material into their celibate was the most exciting feedback i
0: wish the book many readers the book already has many readers but more in the future and thank you very much for the interview many thanks to both of you
3: thanks for the invitation yeah thanks a lot this
0: is the Dear Diary chapter. Actually, I don't have much to report right now. I'm still working on my paper on filmic street names and other texts. At the same time, we're trying to transform the cinematic artifacts we collected together with citizens in Potsdam at the beginning of the year into a kind of digital city. We want to create a digital walk-in accessible to the citizens and offering a mode of what could be called walk-in theatrical sampling. Before Corona, the initial idea was to evaluate the artifacts together with the citizens, and for this purpose, we planned joint walks through the city of Potsdam. That didn't happen, of course, during the year due to the pandemic, and because the opportunity to create an open air installation on filmic street names arose. And now we are in the middle of the second wave of the Corona pandemic. Once again, this prevents us from being able to meet collectively with citizens in a city. However, the digital walk-in theoretical sampling should enable us, nevertheless, to meet with the citizens at various locations to talk about the already coded artifacts. But as I said, at the moment, this is nothing more than a vision on paper. Let's see if it can be realized. In general, I'm, well, how can I say, there is a sort of gloomy mood I'm in right now because the pandemic and so on. So, In a way, I'm very happy that I have this podcast because this is my little window to normality uh, and um, academic life. Maybe you can comprehend that in the current situation, it is simply nice to hear enthusiastic colleagues realizing great projects. I'm inspired by people like Helen, Lalif, and Andreas. So I'm very grateful to be able to talk to these kinds of colleagues and all the brilliant guests I already had in this podcast, especially in this current situation. I hope that they are inspiring for you as well. That was Film Studies Blinking. Please don't hesitate to contact me if you would like to share your research, publications, call for paper with us in this podcast. The podcast is meant as a platform for the hidden and well-known treasures, big and small diamonds in the field of film studies. Just write me an email. a.kiss at filmuniversität.de Until next time.